my boys were young, really young, little, there was nothing quite like watching their wild-eyed wonder as they would watch a kite lift up into the sky. And I remember one particular summer afternoon, we were at my parents' house. At the time, they lived on a 40-acre farm with a very long driveway, a perfect place to fly a kite, with the winds whipping across the flatlands. And our boys, frustratedly at first, ran up and down the driveway with this kite as it would erratically go up and then quickly crash into the ground. Maybe you're familiar with that kind of scene. Up and then down, and they'd be running, and every two seconds they'd be looking back to see if it was if it was going up or not. And finally, my husband stepped in, and he sat with them, and he he showed them the the gentle and slower route of slowly letting that string route go out. And of course, it would go up and down at times. And he also showed them, you know, it's probably not best to go down the driveway where there's trees that are going to get in the way. And eventually, as they slowly let that string out, the kite went soaring higher and higher above the trees. And our boys watched, captivated. Last week, we began a new series, Remarkable Relationships. We are leaning into this image of a kite to illustrate for us the path that relationships can so often take. Relationships often can begin soaring high when we hit it off and then quickly crash into the ground. And oftentimes in the beginning of relationships, there's this up and there's this down and it often has to do with with all of the things that we bring into relationships all of our baggage, our hurts, our own ruptures and pains that causes these these relationships to lift up and quickly go crashing. But we believe that God has also designed us to live truly remarkable relationships where we can eventually get past those ups and downs and crash and ruptures and burns and learn the great incredible joy of soaring high. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much that you are a relational God. We pray in these next few moments that you would nourish our imaginations for what a remarkable relationship can truly look like. God, we pray for anyone that is struggling with a relationship in their life. We pray that by your spirit, you would begin to heal and restore and redeem and ways that only you can do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. To be human is to be relational. It is the very thing to be human is to be relational, and also to be human is to be emotional. That is, we are filled with all sorts of complex emotions and nuances and blends and variations and intensities. And these are all of the things that we bring into our relationships. And sometimes we can see these relationships take off in remarkable and gorgeous and stunning and exciting ways. And in the very next moment, crash and burn. And it's really pretty amazing that when we begin a good relationship, the hopes and expectations that that we place, we think that things could never go wrong, that things will always be perfect. This is true in our working relationships. This is true in our family relationships. This This is true in our marriages or dating relationships. All relationships, we have high expectations in the beginning and we think things could never go wrong. 
I remember when I first became a mom, for example, the day that precious Caleb Daniel Leach was born, he was perfect. And I had all of these visions of being a boy mom, that we, we were gonna just always get along and it was gonna be so much fun and there would never be a fight, there would never be a disagreement, that he was always just going to be perfect as he was, as that perfect little bundle of joy. Well, Caleb Daniel Leach is now a sixth grader, um, entering into middle school, he's 11 years old, and let me tell you, you can't have enough degrees to, to figure out how to connect with an 11-year-old boy. Uh, I find myself constantly trying to learn and understand how to make those connections. Uh, he just started sixth grade, and every day when he comes home from school, I'm, I'm reaching, trying to figure out ways to talk to him, because oftentimes in our conversations, it goes like this. Caleb, how was school? Fine. What'd you learn today? I don't know. What'd you do at recess? Nothing. Who'd you hang out with? I don't know. Do you have friends? I don't know. Mom, why do you keep asking me these questions? So I, I went to Google recently, and I Googled, how to connect with my sixth grader? What questions should I ask my kid when they get home from school? Any parents ever do that before? Okay, I did. I Googled. I Googled. What questions should I answer? And so I, I was all ready, and, and Kayla came home from school, and I'm sitting at the kitchen table, and I'm ready to ask him questions, and I look at the list of questions that Google said I should ask. First question. Kayla, what color did your teacher wear at school today? Apparently, that was just a lame question, because he just sat there and looked at me. Why? Why would you ask me that, Mom? Duh. But see, we all have these like hopes and visions of dreams of, of how relationships are going to be with our spouses, with, with our kids, with family members and relationships. And it's not always that, that path that we expect. And what we learn is that relationships are complex. There's tough, there's disagreements, there's ruptures, which hopefully leads to repair. And at the very center of scripture, is this idea of relationship. This book is all about relationship. Or another way to put it is covenant. That God is a relational God. That God desires to be in relationship with God's people and it doesn't end there. God has given us a gift of being in relationship with one another. But when sin entered the scene, we see that those relationships are ruptured. But what does God do? God constantly moves in with a plan to repair and to restore those relationships. And we see the backdrop all throughout the story of God, a lot of really difficult stories of relationships ending, of them fighting, of them turning their backs on one another, and even murder. We see some really gruesome, difficult relationships in scripture, and this is the backdrop of the complexity of how hard relationships are but God moves in and works to restore God's people. And we see this, this stunning movement in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter two, these new relationships begin and they are so excited. Jesus is alive and they wanna to come together and, and, and they wanna break bread and they, they, they wanna share what they have. What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. And it kind of shows at the beginning of that honeymoon or excitement that relationships often have. But then really quickly after, Maybe in having disagreements. As we turn the pages in Acts, we, we see them moving from this excitement and honeymoon phase to, you can't eat that. If you eat that, you, you know where you're gonna go if you eat that. If you eat that, you're gonna be excluded from the people of God or you're not welcome here. You're not welcome to this table because you're a Gentile or because you're a Jew or because you're this. And we see all of these ruptures. 
And so then the apostle Paul moves in and he begins writing these pastoral letters to all these churches that are struggling with one another. And at the center of all of his letters is to shepherd these churches, frankly, to get along and to have good and healthy and holistic relationships. He wants them to understand this incredible and basic principle of what it means to be a person of God. And that comes from the words of Jesus himself. When Jesus says, love as I have loved. And so the Apostle Paul gets at it specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which we're gonna look at right now. If you do have your Bibles and you want to open them up, we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's listen to Paul's word to the church in Corinth about how to get along. He says this, verses 12 through 17. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we are all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not be for that reason to stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not be for that reason to stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? So it is clear right away in this passage and all throughout 1st and 2nd Corinthians that the church in Corinth was embroiled in controversy. And that controversy was with one another in their relationships. They were dividing over opinions of teachers. They were dividing over the values in Roman society and how they should live in Christians in this world, including sexual ethics. They were dividing over race and ethnicity. They were dividing over over social ranking. There was a sense of superiority against one another. Uh, They were dividing over what foods to eat. They were polarized. Sound familiar? They were polarized. And so the Apostle Paul moves in, and by the way, what a far cry from where they were in Acts chapter two, when they were just so excited to come together and eat together and sing together and worship together. Now here they are, and they're just constantly at each other's throats and and arguing about everything. And so the Apostle Paul says, whoa, hold on, There's, there's gonna be a lot of diversity in these relationships. And it's important to understand that even in all these, in, in all of these differences and all these different ideas and thinking and social classes and ethnicity, we need unity. Not uniformity, but unity and diversity. And Paul deeply understands that the glue that will keep this body together is Jesus and to love as God loves. Just as Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 34, when he says, as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. Now, we need to do some unpacking on this word love for a moment, because the English language doesn't do justice to help us understand the type of love that Jesus and Paul are talking about that we ought to have to have this unity, not uniformity, but this unity and togetherness. See, we, we 
use love very liberally, at least I do. I'm an emotive person, if you couldn't tell. I'm an emotive person and I just love all the things. I love coffee and chocolate and peanut butter, preferably together. I love going out to eat. I love charcuterie boards. I love my children. I love my husband. I love my family. I love this church. I just love all the things. And so as you can see, love doesn't, this, this idea of love in the English language doesn't reveal to us exactly the type of love that we need to come together. And so we're going to look at, at so the Greek words for love. The first one that I want to look at is eros. And, and looking at these, these Greek words of love, what this is going to do is show us this, this flight path that relationships can often go on this up and this down, this up and this down, and eventually we want to overcome and live into the truly remarkable relationships. So when any relationship begins, it often begins with this eros type of love. It is fiery, it is exciting, it is new, and it is also dependent on how I feel. In other words, I love you because you make me feel so good when I'm with you. You make me laugh, you are hilarious, you do this for me, you bring me flowers, you send me encouraging text, you're the person at work that, that goes in before me and opens up my door and turns on the lights so that I can just slip right into my office, you are the person that's always happy, you're the person that's always encouraging me at work, or you're always the good kid, or you're always this. And it has very much to do with how I feel with I am around this person but sometimes that phase doesn't last very long. I tell young people, for example, all the time in marriage counseling, those butterflies and fireworks are not always going to be there. And that's okay, that's normal in any relationship. Because eventually there's going to be pressures and winds, there's gonna be struggles, there's gonna be baggage, there's gonna be hurt, there's gonna be frustration. And Eros is not going to sustain the type of relationship unless we can move to the next kind of love. And that next kind of love is philia. Philia, literally meaning a brotherly or a deep kind of bond. It is a very close and comforting kind of bond. And this is the type of love or bond when we see the person as their own person perhaps maybe more as a compliment to us. So instead of them being exactly like us, we begin to see that there's some differences and they're good and we like their differences. Maybe we like the fact that they are really organized because that complements our messiness. Or maybe we like the fact that they are adventurous because we need that, because we're the type that would rather stay at home on a Friday night and we need that person to help us get our adventure on. Or we maybe see that we're not good at something, but they are good at something, and so we really like that. But eventually, those things that we really like that are different can also begin to become a little annoying. Why do you care that the house needs to be clean all the time? That's what my husband always says to me. Why do, why do you care so much about this? Or, or I'm always on time, why can't you be on time? Or I'm responsible, why do you always have to be so spontaneous and adventurous? I think about my marriage, for example, with Jeff. God could not have brought two more polarized opposite people together. Jeff is a little rocket scientist and has been an engineer for NASA and he is such a black and white processed thinker and I am all the artsy and emotive and I love everything and 
well, we are different. And I realized, it, and this is what first attracted us to one another. It was fun and it was exciting. And I thought, oh my goodness, my closet is gonna be so organized when I marry this guy because he is going to help me keep everything together and everything's just gonna be all organized. We just complement one another. And when we were registering for our wedding at Bed Bath & Beyond, we were going through Evident Thing, and it was just so exciting for me. I just walked into the place and I was like, let's just register for all the things. And I had that fun little gun. And, and Jeff was just like, well, wait, we need to really analyze this. If, you know, if, if, it's, if the gigahertz are going to line up with the gigawatts, and if we put this in our house, if our house is going to catch on fire, and if our house catches on fire, then I was just like, why can't we just register with it? Like, why do we need to analyze every little thing? And see, this is what often happens in relationships, doesn't it? The things that attract us to them suddenly become, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. You used to be so carefree, but now I'm just not liking it. And so we get stuck in this phase and with this cycle of if. I don't know if it's going to last. If... If you can't lay off on all that strategic thinking or it's driving me crazy or if, or if, they, if they can just stop doing this or if they can just stop doing that. And it's very dependent upon this if. I'll love you if. I'll stick in this relationship if. Sound familiar? I counsel a lot of people going through this. Friendships, co-working relationships, and sadly, so often these relationships at this point, this is the phase where they really begin to crash and burn to the point of no return. Friends stop talking, ghost one another, drift apart, divorces, family members become estranged, coworkers avoid one another in the hallway and talk about one another in the break room. There's hurt, irreparable ruptures, seemingly, and betrayal. Perhaps the devastating thing is, is when relationships stop here, as they were just so close to discovering the magic of a remarkable relationship. Because the place that God wants us to soar high above all of the differences and, and ruptures and challenges is to get to this place in our relationships to love as God loves. That is agape love, a perfect love. This is exactly the type of love Jesus was talking about in John 13 when he said, as I have loved you, so must you love one another. This type of love is a type of love that is, I love you no matter what, through sickness or health. I love you even on the days that I'm not attracted to you. I love you even on the days that you are frustrating me. I love you so much that even in these differences of opinions, we are going to work through this because I am committed to you and the love of God compels me to break through all of this, this bondage and the trees that get into the way and tangled up and we are going to extend the strings of our heart to learn a greater kind of love. I love you through the misses and the misunderstandings, the disagreements and the shortcomings, the rips and the ruptures, that it is a type of love that chooses to lean into patience and self-control and understanding and goodness and hospitality and grace and mercy, 
that is the path of learning to love as God loves. In closing then, I would like to offer up two reflective questions for us to think about how might I learn to reach this next phase, this important and central phase in relationship to love as God loves, to experience this agape love. And as I ask these questions, I wanna invite you to ponder on a relationship in your life that you are really struggling with. I've got mine, do you have yours? So the first question is, what is it about me that is limited? What is it about me that is limited? See, often when we reach these difficult moments and the kite goes crashing down, our posture towards others is the finger pointing out. You did this, you didn't say this, you should have done this, you are lacking in this way, and if you don't change, you are out of here, we're not gonna be friends anymore, we're not gonna be in relationship anymore. If I'm organized, why can't you be organized? If I've got it together, why can't you get it together? If I am fun and rambunctious, why can't you be fun and rambunctious? I live this way, why don't you live this way? But the posture that God invites us in is to take that finger and pick up a mirror and hold it up to ourselves. And to stand openly and honestly before God. God, I confess that I have limitations. I confess that I have weaknesses. So help me see, God, how it is that I am limited and that I am lacking and that I am bringing pain and brokenness into this relationship. If we wanted everyone to be just like us, it would be a sad world. And let me tell you, you definitely don't want a world of a million terabests. We need the diversity. We don't want everyone to be like us. Paul puts it this way. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. There are many parts. So instead of looking at our friendships and relationships and saying, I'm an eye, you need to become an eye. I'm an ear, you need to become an ear. Recognize that we are created so uniquely with complexities, with our own brokenness and pain. We are wired differently, we are created differently. And so instead of saying, what is it about you that is lacking? Instead say, I need you, so what is it about me that is lacking? So I can be a better friend, so I can be a better spouse, so I can be a better coworker. The second question I wanna invite you to sit with is this. What is it about me, or what is it about the people around you that needs to be celebrated. Think about those people in your life that you're frustrated with right now. What are you focused on? Probably not the good things. My guess is you've been obsessing, and this, this can get to a toxic place for our own souls. When that bitterness begins to take root in our hearts, and we begin to obsess over all of their failures and wrongdoings and all of, of their faults and we become completely blind to the wonderful things that they bring into the relationships. And so sadly, 
we often don't realize these things until it's too late. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. What if we subversively move towards those who we are only focusing on their faults and chose to treat them with special honor? And instead of obsessing and allowing toxicity and bitterness to take root in our hearts, what if we instead leaned in and said, I wanna celebrate you. This was a win. This was good, this was amazing about you. We're so busy noticing the faults of others that we are missing out on the gifts that they are bringing to the table. I wanna close with an illustration for you that might seem rather abruptly different, but bear with me. I want you to imagine this scene with me. A pack of wolves make their way down a winding mountain stream for a cool drink of water. As the sun pierces through the trees, their coats glisten as they wave back and forth in the wind. It seems as though everything is glistening. The blades of the grass are glistening. The water is glistening. The birds around seem healthy. Everything is in balance. Everything is in order as it should be. We are at Yellowstone. But it's not always been this way in Yellowstone. In fact, there was a time that ecologists and environmentalists and biologists were incredibly concerned about the decay of the ecosystem in Yellowstone. After wolves were extinct in 1930, wolves were once again reintroduced into the ecosystem in 1995, and now decades later, they are beginning to understand an effect in which they call a reverse cascade effect. That with just the simple reintroduction of wolves, the ecosystem is in balance once again. For example, Now wolves are chasing the elk and as the elk run, they kick up dirt and grass and it aerates the ground. And also because of that, the elk then are no longer staying in one place and it's giving the grass and the grassy lands time to recover and to return. Not only that, but it has created there to be less coyotes than there once were. And because now there's less coyotes, they're not hunting as many rodents or small animals. And now the raptors and the bald eagles and the hawks are able to swoop in and hunt after the rodents. Not only that, but the grizzly bears that were endangered, they're able to now successfully steal from the wolves some of the prey that they capture and feed it to their grizzly cubs. It's wild to think about that a simple introduction of a wolf population, nobody batted an eye when they were gone, but then returning what they brought to the table brought a more balanced and healthy ecosystem.
See, biologists have long called the opposite of that a cascade effect, that when you remove a species from an ecosystem, things shift. And they've seen a great reversal. That simply just wolves returning, what they bring to the table puts everything in order again. We need a return in diverse relationships. That just as wolves went for decades unnoticed, that when ecologists and biologists and environmentalists began to see the strengths that they brought, the ecosystem was in order again. Imagine with me a church of people in relationship with one another, with differing ideas, with differing opinions, differing personalities, different ways of processing pain and hurt around the world, different ideas of how we should solve the world's problems and dilemmas. And imagine a church of people that instead of pointing the fingers outward and pointing the faults, there being a cascade effect in the church and seeing the gifts that they bring and understanding that we need all the ideas, we need all the personalities, we need all of the opinions for the ecosystem called the church to be in order. Imagine that. Let us pray. Lord, we pray for a great cascade effect in relationships. That instead of fingers pointing outward saying, we don't need you in my ecosystem, we would be more reflective and say, God, work on me first. God, start on me first. God, grow me first. And that we would look at our brothers, sisters, friends, foes, partners, husbands, wives, and say, you bring something to the table that I don't. And when we lean into the agape love of God, we soar. God, we pray for that kind of effect here now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.